Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. You can see what Joyce and Dutton are trying to do in the regions. Your your dolphins are paying the price for latte-sipping elites in the inner city, you know? Um, you're the victim of their political commitment. Hello, lovely potters. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me down the line in Sydney is the ever-delightful Peter Lewis, Executive Director of Essential Media. Hey, Catherine. Listeners, you will know, uh, given the personalities involved, that this is our regular catch-up about the Guardian Essential Poll. Now, this week we focused on the energy transition, which is stirring once again as a point of partisan controversy. Are you shocked by that, Peter? It feels like we've been in this movie before, although the points <laughs> are kind of changing along along the um, plot line, aren't they? So it, it seemed like a good time to check in on this. And I guess we have been consumed by the referendum over the last three months at least, and there's been a whole lot of other burning platforms, <laughs> literally burning as we sort of head towards summer. We've got Bushfires already starting along some of the coastal hinterland. We've got communities protesting all sorts of um, consequences of rolling out renewable energy. And, you know, we've got a government with an ambitious target that is staring them down the timeline of 2030 and then 2050, don't we? Mm-hmm. So anyway, a lot of interesting moving parts there. So we were saying before we pressed record for the show that we both felt it in our waters uh, that this might be the time to revisit a topic that we are both very interested in and see where the community's at, basically. So we did that. So let's just jump straight in to uh, run through with the numbers and then we'll have a chat about what we think they mean. So... Why don't we just start with the obvious question? How are people feeling about the energy transition? Okay, so we've got a benchmark that we've been running all the way back to 2016, which basically asks people whether they think the government's um, doing enough, not doing enough, doing too much, or if people don't have a view on, and we've framed it as addressing climate change. This poll is the lowest ever number of people that say the government's not doing enough, 38. Mm -hmm. At the height of the January 20 bushfires, it was at 62, not doing enough. So I think the government 
has shifted the perception that they're just sitting this one out, um, which I think was a perception of the previous government. What have we got? We've got 36 not doing enough, 17 doing too much. And we can talk about that argument a little bit later and still 9%, which is, again, the lowest ever not having a view of this at all. Mm, It's interesting because that suggests, in terms of not having a view, suggests that we've kind of reached a point of fluency Mm. in this area, which we may not have always been at. It is quite intriguing, and we will come back to that. I think the thing that sort of jumped out at me was the statement, uh, I can't remember exactly how we framed it, Peter, but that in the transition to renewables, we can't leave communities behind, that there was very, very strong levels of agreement with that statement. And we obviously put that statement to people because that's where we're at, right? As we sort of alluded to at the top, we're at a point where the rubber is starting to hit the road on some of these projects. So that was quite interesting to me that it's kind of like we've got sort of levels of support for the transition that are, you know, that are pretty good, but there's a level of hesitation there too. Yeah, I think the politics has changed in this much that we had, God, didn't we have over a decade of politics on what are we going to do? What's the target going to be? Yeah. Are we going to do something? No, maybe we will. No, we better not. Is it a tax? What's our target? What's our target? What's our target? When the Prime Minister said the climate wars are over, I think that what are we going to do? There has been a stake put in that. And now it's the doing. And the politics of doing is very different to the politics of going to do. Because the politics of doing, by its nature, has lived consequence. It's no longer Mm. a slogan that you put on your T-shirt. It's pieces of industry and infrastructure that... Yeah, that arrive in your community. And Mm. if we remember, before the election, these were put forward as glittering prizes. Renewable energy zones was that breaking the idea that the economy and the environment were enemies, that you had to choose between one or the other. And it was this idea that we could do what we need to do for the environment while creating jobs and creating industry. And I think that all looked really good on the brochure. And now it's the lived experience of disruptive development. But back to your question, because I might be getting ahead of myself, attitudes to renewable energy transition. So 70% agree with the statement Australia needs to ensure that the development of renewables do not come at the expense of local communities. Very open-ended, but people are sensitive to that. We all agree on that. Australia needs to make the most of its unique natural resources and weather conditions so it can be a leader in the global effort. Um, 66% support and 60% supporting Australia needs to rapidly develop renewables because it will provide cheaper and stable energy and create new jobs, which is kind of that pitch. The only other statement we put in was Australia does not need to transition to renewables. Just 25% agree with that, only 9% strongly. Majority of people reject that. So the public's ready to go on the next stage of the climate journey. Mm. And let's just step it out. You know this policy better than me, but basically we've got renewable energy zones, we've got a commitment to rapidly increase the number of both um, solar and wind farms on the ground and offshore wind farms. And also the bit that is very disruptive is this idea of upgrading the grid to enable the decentralised energy that comes with renewables to all feed in. So that's the rewiring Australia agenda. Now... While that is a green agenda, 
the development is dark brown Mm. and it's being driven by capitalism, it's being driven by money and that's a good thing but it also has the impact on any community that development has and that's where we are at the moment I think and you only needed to look at the news over the weekend Peter Dutton's out there on a surfboard protecting the whales. Barnaby Joyce has been swimming with dolphins. It reminds me of the guy in um, Hooked on Freddy, but we couldn't put that in a column. These guys can see an opportunity to exploit disruption and they're going for it. And they're not working with nothing because it's not as if the developments are going to be... Uncontroversial. disruption. Like, yeah. they are. Yeah, and And so... It does create a serious challenge, particularly with that election matrix that we've now got, which New South Wales coastal seats are largely Labor and a lot of them won (laughs) the renewable energy zones. And, you know, the idea of offshore wind is meant to be a real winner and the opposition's trying to turn it into a negative. Yeah, exactly. So let's just sort of skip quickly through the various technologies because we asked, you know, what do you think of X, Y and Z technologies? So renewables people are sort of conceptually on board with, right? And then we get to nuclear, which is also part of the mix because the coalition is sort of championing or advancing a nuclear debate. What's the picture there? Okay, so let's talk about renewable first. So To what extent would you support or oppose the development of the following renewable energy infrastructure? Solar farms, um, 69% support, 12% opposition. Offshore wind farms, that's 60% support, 19% opposition. So you see that rising a bit. Onshore wind, it's pretty similar numbers there. Community battery, I would have thought people would like that more, maybe needs a bit more explanation. 56 support, 14 opposition. I I still don't get people that oppose these things. Mm. The one that hasn't got the social licence is overground transmission lines. Mm. 35% support, 25% opposition, 39% in the middle. So that's that's a difficult issue for the government. Mm. Um, Yeah. In terms of nuclear... We did ask people for support. Now, it's not a new number, but 50% of people say they support nuclear. That's the same as it was the last time we asked it 12 months ago. 33% opposition, 18% unsure. It's being put forward as almost the straw man that says, oh, you don't need to do any of this stuff because nuclear is coming. And Mm. there is a bit of a market for that idea, right? We also asked people what they thought was the most expensive, least expensive, and got them to rate renewable, nuclear and fossil fuels. On the numbers, renewable comes out as the most expensive, (laughs) then nuclear, then um, fossil fuels as the cheapest. So there's been a good job done there, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that really jumped out at me. It is quite interesting, actually, that sort of people, again, conceptually, you wouldn't say nuclear had a social licence, but you wouldn't say that people are massively, massively hostile either. And also this idea that nuclear is <laughs> is a somehow cheaper power, it's sort of, it's just astonishing, really. Um, so it's been a good job done over many years to sort of draw a connection in the mind of voters between renewable energy and higher power prices. That was a uh, an ambition by some in politics and by some uh, in the corporate sector. And that has definitely yielded a result because people are not aware in our 
survey that all the evidence points to renewables as the cheapest form of power at this point in time. So that's also very interesting. I'm trying to see if there's an age different here. So no, it's actually opposite to what I thought. Younger people think nuclear is more expensive rather than older people. There you go. Um, You know, people of my generation were politicised around nuclear. Like my first politics was the Nuclear Disarmament Party back in the early 80s, voting for Peter Garrett for the Senate and everything, if you remember back then. And I do. That was my journey in. Um, I find it a really challenging issue just because it's been quite a lot of my political identity, but there are a whole generation that have not been part of that story. And now we're being told with nuclear that our geopolitical security lies in the big N through the subs. Mm. I don't know. I've been trying to line this up. So if you're trying to disrupt... So... Labor wants to be able to go to the next election to say we have ended the climate wars and we've started to roll things out. Look, here they are. If you are trying to disrupt that to not give the government leverage, you're doing three things. One is that you're trying to foster a sense that this is happening to you rather than with you, which is that kind of alienation. So government's making you do this. Mm -hmm. You can see what... Joyce and Dutton are trying to do in the regions. Your your dolphins are paying the price for latte-sipping elites in the inner city, you know. Um, you're the victim of their political commitment. The second thing you do is you create a whole bunch of facty, truthy claims that no one can quite get their head around, everything from the health impacts of wind farms to, you know, the birds and the, the fish and the bees. And then you say there's an alternative, you don't need to do it, there's an easier way, and that's where nuclear fits in, I think. So mm. I think it, it is both um, self-serving for the industry to put itself back out there, but it's also very political convenient for an increasingly radicalised reactionary right wing that just wants to get in the way of community consensus. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. It is interesting. And it's uh, you can see the sort of results of the groundwork um, in some of the numbers. So let's just go back to where we sort of started a minute ago, that point of uh, who's doing enough or not doing enough. So as we've said, right, the peak of the not doing enough was around the Black Saturday bushfires and, and that makes perfect sense that where we sort of had numbers 60% or north of that saying Australia's not doing enough, uh, that's come down to 38 now, Um, but people also saying that we're doing too much has gone from 8 to 17% over the same period. So if you look at the graphs on the website, guys, as you're Mm. listening, and there's a sort of convergence of the two lines, which is quite interesting. Now, Peter, if we look a little bit deeper into the cross tabs, if we look a bit deeper into those numbers, what do we learn? This is interesting. So I was expecting that the sense that the government was not doing enough would be from progressives that want to see more. In fact, the number there has gone up amongst coalition voters. Now, given that most remaining coalition voters who wanted action on climate change sort of passed their vote over into other columns at the last election, I think what we're seeing there is actually an evolving narrative coming out of the coalition more generally that the government's not doing anything, that it's wasted a year on the voice that it's not doing enough on cost of living, that it's not doing enough on 
climate change and renewables. And my um, research lead, Gavin White, who hails originally from New Zealand, was pointing out to me it's very similar to the campaign that's just been run against the New Zealand Labor that saw a change of government, that what's the point Mm -hmm. of having these guys in? They're not actually doing things. So it's interesting because a political movement of the right that is really just to oppose everything and make things impossible to achieve then goes, see, you don't do anything. So it's, it's kind of a beautiful sort of circular um, argument there. Yeah, it's curious, isn't it, that there has been this uptick. And you're right, obviously it could be a proxy for competence or lack thereof, which is where Peter Dutton was sort of going about three weeks out from the referendum vote or maybe four weeks out even, Peter Dutton's language started to shift and it became a matter of competence, whether or not the Prime Minister prevailed in the referendum. I mean, there was all those sort of arguments about dividing the country by race and et cetera, but also in the Dutton constructions, locutions, talking points, there was a lot of focus on the Prime Minister has kind of messed this up, that Mm. there was this grand moment for reconciliation here that the Prime Minister has somehow Mm. messed up. It's interesting whether... Look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Yeah, we're kind of at that sort of stage of the political cycle, which is grimly fascinating. It'd be funny, though, if there were more coalition voters who thought that more needed to be done, but then it depends what what the what What is, What the more is, yeah. (laughs) And again, let's go back. I think nuclear becomes this beautiful fig leaf for um, the coalition. They can turn up at every single community protest and... My friends who are active on the ground in regional areas around energy transition say that there is genuine community concern about large-scale development, Mm. and of course there would be, but it's being fermented up and weaponised by very skilled practitioners who have just taken their machine of division and disinformation to turn reconciliation into racial division, now trying to turn renewables into an attack on the environment. And I can see how this is going to play out where the end point is small, modular nuclear, which isn't like the old nuclear that, you know, we didn't like. The Fukushima type. Yeah. yeah, no, this is little and it, I don't know if it's less radioactive or there's a shorter half-life or whatever, but it's modular. So it seems smaller, like I know it's explained the difference. But yeah, it's going to say you don't need it because we can build that somewhere else. And you can see that, again, they'll be able to kick the issue down the road to the benefit of their backers in the fossil fuel industry. Like you can see what they're trying to do. Mm. Um The frustrating thing is that just calling them out is probably not enough and calling regional communities that are concerned about developments, flat earthers or NIMBYs isn't going to work either. It's just going to play into the opposition's hands. So I think there is some work to be done here that is a little bit more nuanced than we normally do in politics on both sides, both progressive and the right. Yeah. Well, it's almost like mm, we planned this, Peter. Always. That is the perfect, perfect segue into where we sort of wanted to land the whole conversation at the back end, which is what now? Now, you're right in terms of the general posture and nuclear sort of being the next front in delaying renewables. I think this is demonstrable. I think there's plenty of proof points around about it. But the thing that gives that salience, though, 
is that obviously some transmission in communities, electricity transmission is not new. It's not a function of renewables. Obviously, there's a hell of a lot of it around already, although not enough, hence all the building that has to happen. But anyway, there's a point to this preamble. The point is uh, some of that community consultation in the past has not been well handled. So a lot of these communities are not coming at this from a theoretical point of view, i.e. I don't like that nasty wind tower close to my backyard or, or that transmission tower, I'm sorry, I should say. It's that they have had lived experience in the past where energy companies haven't always handled this well and where landowners haven't been treated respectfully. So anyway... You wrote an interesting column, as you always do, associated with the numbers that uh, is available on the Guardian website. Go and search it out, where you were talking about how can we do this differently? And I do think that's the right question Mm. to ask, because a lot of whether or not the government wins or prevails in this phase of the climate wars, and we're just in a new phase of it, will really come down to empathy and competence on the ground really, with these communities. Now, you had a couple of ideas about it. Why don't you share them with the listeners? I, I, won't, I won't claim authorship of the ideas. I'm more a bowerbird, but my friend Ed Coper, who is a political strategist who wrote a fantastic book last year called Facts and Other Lies, which is a bit of a blueprint for dealing with disinformation, has a few ideas that I didn't steal because I attributed them to him. Thank you, Ed. Um, So Ed's thing is, let's think about this as a methodology, not the issue itself. And so as a methodology, the way you fight disinformation and conspiracy theories is firstly not to call them that, but to build a point of connection. The second is to inoculate with small doses of whatever it is that is poisoning the debate. And finally, what he calls pre-bunking. So in terms of this debate, it would go like this. It would start with a real recognition that communities will be disrupted and there is a common value between those that want to see a renewable transition and those who are fighting for their regional communities is that it's about the love of the community and it's about having a a bigger picture story about what a renewable energy zone might look like, the jobs, the economic models of the energy change. There's some great examples of community solar farms, for instance. There's one down in Goulburn, I understand. So to paint a picture that isn't just a big wire coming through a community or a big turbine turning up in the paddock next to you. Hmm. The second is to not lie that this is coming, but to prepare people for it and Hmm. explain why. That's your inoculation bit. And then finally, with nuclear... It's not to wait till they get their lies out front, but to get the information out first, call out who is going to be coming and making those calls, doing what we're doing now and saying Peter Dutton is going to run on nuclear, A, because he always supports big business and secondly, because he wants to divert attention from the need for a renewable rollout. And if you get those three techniques in some form of chaotic sequence, the chances of that sense of righteous grievance that government from Canberra is imposing something on you is minimised. It doesn't mean you're going to win the debate, but it's going to give you a much better chance of having conversations. Because where you want to get to is, one of my colleagues in the movement was telling me yesterday that there was a period where coal communities, it wasn't just about jobs, it was about 
feeling that they were contributing to the nation by providing the energy and that miners would be thanked for their contribution. I think we've got to get to a point where we imagine a future where we've got this renewable grid, we've got communities that are contributing, that they're getting a benefit from it, but they're also getting recognition that the offshore wind is a critical part of our nation's prosperity. And I know that sounds a little bit kumbaya, but you've got to have that big story at the end of it to work towards. Otherwise, you are just disrupting a local community and you're likely to get smashed. Yeah, and it's sort of the big idea issue so interesting in the wash-up of the referendum because if we look at that environment, the superficial interpretation of that result would be that Australians are not minded to consider a big idea at the moment, right? That we're all head down in life and we sort of resented being diverted by a debate that pulled us away from our, you know, very Mm. real and valid material concerns. But I don't know. Although to Stan Grant's statements yesterday, maybe the idea wasn't big enough. Well, there's still possibly there's that. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I've got nothing more than gut feeling to sort of reinforce this proposition. I think, you know, part of the reason people are head down in life is because that's completely legitimate and we're all head down in life, but that there's sort of been this absence of a big idea Mm. that is capable of grasping people across demographics, age groups, um, you know, income levels, all of that sort of stuff. And it's it's basically transforming the Australian economy for a low emissions future, right? And, and also just to finish that off, there's something innately connective about the idea of renewable energy grid. If, like, exactly. if we could get the story right, because the old energy is that you dig stuff up, you burn it, you distribute it. Renewables is about finding power sources through what's already there and then sharing it. It's a different model. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's sort of... It's something that you might be able to write a song about. I don't, you know. (laughs) No, I know. Anyway, it's intriguing and it it will go on being intriguing uh, for many, many months yet. And obviously we'll continue to uh, revisit these points and look at where community sentiment is building and changing over time. And it's a real challenge, obviously, for government in an era of small government to try and contemplate how you get ahead of this kinetically, how you put yourself in these communities and how you start to engage them prior to the fact. So I think all of that's really fascinating and I think listeners to the show today will understand why that's really interesting and important. So thank you, Peter, for your time. As always, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who is the EP of this show. This episode was produced by Mel Chun. Uh, We'll catch you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.